This is Kristen O'Brien, Managing Editor at NFX, and you're listening to the NFX Podcast. Today, we're talking about how to build a billion-dollar marketplace in this episode with Marco Zappacosta and Pete Flint. Pete is a partner at NFX and the founder and former CEO of Trulia, the real estate marketplace that merged with Zillow in a $3.2 billion transaction. And Marco is the co-founder and CEO of Thumbtack, a marketplace that matches customers with local professionals, now valued at more than $1.7 billion. Today, we're covering how Thumbtack and Trulia solved the chicken and egg problem, what Marco says he would have done differently as an early stage marketplace, Series A fundraising lessons, and how short-term metrics can actually hinder long-term retention. Let's jump in. Today, uh, we're talking about marketplaces, we're talking about Thumbtack, maybe just as a way to introduce um, the story. Why don't you tell us about Thumbtack and really the origin, like how did you get going? How did you solve that critical cold start problem um, from from zero to something? All the way back. All the way back. Um, so in many ways, we did what you're not supposed to do at the beginning and decide to start a business and then go hunting for an idea. Um, I'm happy to speak to the merits of that approach, which I think is undersold in Silicon Valley. But really, the, the heuristic we took was, what is the biggest problem that we can think of that will inevitably be solved? And the observation that led to the last 10 years of work was, you know, why is it so hard to hire a plumber? You know, we weren't homeowners at the time. We're still in college. But when we sort of realized this and started thinking, and it's not just home services. It's really all local services. It's very rare for you to have to work so hard to spend money. You know, all of capitalism is about enabling sort of your laziness to get what you want easily. And yet here was a category where people had the budget, had the desire, had the intent, and struggled to spend their money. And as we dug into that, it wasn't because there was a lack of labor or lack of supply. There are millions of great professionals out there who would love to find that work and do a great job for you. It was a marketplace failure. It was a matching problem. And so how do you get, you know, how did you kickstart that? That's because obviously the business today makes sense, but... Small company, no customers, no demand side, no supply side. Like, what, what was the sort of typically? There's a hack. There's a like. A, there's a technique you employ to get going. We actually went very broad, mm-hmm. and in fact, that was something that focused our thinking because it forced us to find solutions to drive liquidity that were sort of category independent and geographically independent. And you know, this like super dorky phrase that we told ourselves early on was like. How can we create network-independent value? How can we create value for our pros, the supply side, before we had any network of customers that would ultimately be the, the draw? And, you know, day one, you just don't have that. So the sort of um, hack or sort of uh, growth tactic that early on let us get going was we looked for where these pros were and where they were already hunting for customers. And at the time, you know, 2009, 2010, that was Craigslist. And so we, we built was a very easy tool for them to create a Thumbtack profile and then with one click to republish that onto Craigslist, importing all the pictures and reviews and metadata with a great sort of HTML layout, which they weren't either interested or capable of doing themselves and was instantly valuable to them. Because we could say, hey, you're on Craigslist or it looks like you want to be on Craigslist. We have this great tool. Just come fill out a profile. A free tool. Free tool. Yeah. And what that did was attract pros um, who were motivated to use the internet to find customers, which was exactly who we needed. And two, it also 
gave us a relationship with them from the get-go. So unlike a typical directory, which has a ton of content about you know millions and millions of entities that has no relationship with, Thumbtack from the very beginning and still to this day has a relationship with every pro that you find mm-hmm. on our marketplace. Because we want to connect you with a person, with a pro, not simply with information about a pro. Um, so that was the early sort of growth tactic that got it all going. So kind of, so, so sort of classic, classic growth technique of finding a scale destination that is attracting a similar level of demand and supply and then figuring out a way to add value to that. Yeah. Um, to, you know, the sort of, on the positive side is symbiotic relationship, on the negative side is sort of siphon off that demand. Um, well, there was only an opportunity because they weren't doing a better job. Yeah. And so... You know, my and it's like, very hard as a horizontal platform to really excel in, in these unique, vertical domains. They're very unique. Uh, you know, Craigslist could be this incredible juggernaut, and it chose not to be. Yeah. And that left the door open to Thumbtack, Airbnb, all the personal sites could have been them. You know, it's incredible what they could have built, but yeah. chose not to. And, th- and then there was, a, I imagine, a fair amount of SEO work as well. I know, you know, f- from my experience at Trulia, you know, we... Mm-hmm. We we similarly employed kind of SEO in the early days, back in 2009 and 2010. It was a kind viable. of like a viable strategy mm-hmm. to kind of to oh, get yeah. scale. And we used that as well. And uh, the benefit we had was because pros were coming to create profiles that they were going to use to represent themselves on other platforms like Craigslist. They were very motivated to create a great looking profile yeah. and to give it a lot of unique content. And um, for a long time early on, and even today, we have shockingly little overlap with the other platforms that are out there. So think of a a Google, a Facebook, a Yelp. Um, This is a very long tail category that is very fragmented, that is still very opaque to sort of the internet writ large. And our approach not only got us sort of like high quality, intentful relationships, but gave us sort of content that nobody else has, which Mm -hmm. for SEO, as you know, um, is gold and yeah. is what it takes. I'm curious your experiences. Often what we see in startups is growth is a series of S-curves yeah. in that you sort of capture one sort of uh, one opportunity and you leverage that and then you're really sort of surfing a wave of kind of various various different S-curves and finding distribution opportunities, which, and the bigger you are, often the more opportunities open up. How How is, you know, over the, last 10 years how have those how have those sort of s curves evolved and and perhaps how do you think also about um platform risk obviously building a company off craigslist Mm -hmm. craigslist end up shutting down a lot of those kind of like widgets um how do you think about platform risk and alongside that well day one you don't because you have nothing to risk (laughs) and so you're very happy to leverage some other platform to get going and even with seo early on our thinking was like, oh man, this is a zero marginal cost platform to attract customers looking for exactly what we offer, which in our case was uniquely well suited because we are a search engine at the end of the day. We are a place to find and hire pros, which is a search problem. So it was a phenomenal fit in terms of channel. Now, there was no doubt that there was risk to it, which we were very well aware of, but the ultimate hedge against that is to create something that has the stickiness, that has the retention and the repeat usage, such that even if sort of one channel in the early days is the dominant source of new customers, as you built up your base of existing customers, over time that overtakes and becomes the dominant um, channel. And that's true for us, and I think that's why 
Um, you know, we are at this point, you know, don't fear that problem. Um, but it took years and years to get there. But day one, that's okay. And now, you know, we build our own direct uh, relationship with these customers and word of mouth, and that becomes the most important channel that we have to be able to keep growing. And um, it's it's been fascinating to watch Craigslist because that has been a kind of a source of many, many startups, but it's it's also a sort of classic kind of innovator's dilemma for kind of one of a better phrase. They've been driven by their community, but they, they've failed their community because they've they've really been a slave to that and haven't really innovated on top of that. We'll touch on this, but how does how do you not fall into that trap? Like many companies don't, and we'll talk about reinventing Thumbtack, yeah. but like, what have you learned from watching Craigslist all these years about what they haven't done? Well, I mean, I'll speak to my own category, which is the one I know best. Um, and I think the one important positive takeaway, which I think is not sort of emphasized enough, is the value of liquidity. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling how big and important Craigslist, even to this day, still is. Right? For a long time, Uber and Lyft were getting the vast majority of their drivers off of Craigslist. The biggest sort of like margin accretive player in the gig economy space was Craigslist. And that's incredible. And why were they going? It's not because it's safe. It's not because it's easy to use. It's not because it's beautiful and well-designed. It's because it has liquidity. And it just shows how critical that is for a marketplace to both succeed and thrive. And that was very clear to us. Like, look, at the end of the day, we're a matchmaker. And if we can't come, if you can't come and get matched with the right pro each and every time, you're going to go elsewhere. And that has been the sort of overriding objective function to basically everything we've done. Um, that said, you know, and this is sort of what we think about ourselves, you can't get trapped in a current way of doing things if you want to expect to survive sort of for the long term, um, especially in the consumer arena where sort of preferences are evolving and sort of the tools available to both sides are, are sort of always getting better and better. Um, you have to keep pushing that ball forward. And I think it's something I'm very proud of that Thumbtack has done sort of multiple times and sort of very critically over the last few years. Um, but you can't stand still. You got to keep running. The, the, the experience that I've seen from from Craigslist, I, you know, seeing on the housing side intimately, the they lost the for sale category very early on and retained the for rent category very, you know, for a long period of time. And now it appears they've lost it, at least the recent data I've seen, which is, but it is truly remarkable. But it lasted, what, like 20 plus years? Exactly. It's truly remarkable that the liquidity has been there. And particularly the fragmentation facilitates that liquidity rather than sort of professionally, more professionally managed, property, managed marketing in terms of real estate versus more long-tail landlords is that that liquidity is highly persistent. Those network effects mm -hmm. are very, very hard to break. And once you have them, you, you're in a very strong position. Um, I think our category was very well suited to be disrupted because um, when you think about what does well in a medium where the inventory is sort of expiring, it's perishable inventory. So rental markets being a perfect example of that. Service professionals, though, are not that. You know, a plumber is a plumber today and tomorrow and next week. And in fact, by denying them a per permanent presence, you're denying them the ability to accrue reputation and through that compete not just on cost but on quality. And that's the number one thing that pros hated about Craigslist. They said, hey, I love being able to access customers, but I don't want to have to compete just on price. Um, and that makes sense when you're selling your table. Like, fine, you know, you, you care about price and that's it. 
But when you're selling your time and your labor and you are a true craftsperson, um, you want to be able to showcase that craft. And, you know, we really think of our pros as uh, skilled professionals. Um, you know, they're making on average, you know, almost 70 bucks an hour um, in aggregate across the platform because they're providing a sort of quality, unique custom service. Um, and that's exciting. But what they don't want is have to waste their time on marketing and online marketing in particular, which is new and ever-changing and sort of very technically demanding, um, and increasingly the sort of like back office. So, you know, our ambition for these pros is to let them focus on what they do best, serving their clients, applying their trade, and abstracting away the rest uh, such that we can empower them to turn their time and talent into money. So looking back, what would you have done differently? Going back nine years ago, what, what advice would you give your former self back in the formative years? So I have a tactical answer and then a more philosophical answer. Um, my tactical one is I would have focused on PR earlier. And that seems like uh, narrow and trite, but the point here is that it is a channel that can compound that you have to invest in, and that takes deliberate effort, just like any other marketing channel that you have. And I didn't appreciate that, and I underinvested in it for too long early on. And you know, I think TaskRabbit took the opposite approach, did a great job of investing in that, and I think became the sort of labor story in the sharing economy. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have and should have been us, and that is something that I think we neglected and lost out on a lot of like brand building opportunities because of that. Um, and I just thought about it wrong. So it's just a regret that I have. The more philosophical answer is um, we didn't understand the relative prioritization of what our customers and pros needed deeply enough such that we truly focused our development efforts. You know, we had this uh, you know vision early on that we had to obviously make the introduction, but then, you know, facilitate scheduling and payments and all the steps between sort of not knowing who to hire and a job well done. And look, those are absolutely the right things to have on the roadmap, but you don't need to do all of them day one. And in fact, the reason that we were not focused deeply enough on the matchmaking is just we didn't appreciate that was the core need. Um, So far and above everything else, that's where we should have focused longer and harder earlier. And I think we probably could accelerated, have accelerated our path by a year or two um, had we had that clarity early on. Interesting, the matchmaking, because it often, often in the, the sort of, the quality matching might mean deterioration in short-term metrics, um, but ultimately you'll see it in retention metrics further down the line. That's absolutely the case. So, so you'd often... When you're studying the kind of metrics on a day-to-day basis, you're like, you're just forth, you're just focused on making the numbers go up today or next week, but you're not necessarily thinking about a year or six months from time when they're looking at it as a second Yeah, and this is something that I think we came to appreciate and then ultimately bet the company on. So, you know, now there's sort of three areas of, of Thumbtack. You know, the first area was when we were really just trying to find initial product market fit and early like marketplace liquidity building efforts. That's from like 09 to sort of 12 into 13. Then starting in 13, we really had something that we were able to scale very aggressively. And from 13 sort of into 17, we were in that just like scale, 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 hold on. But uh, by the sort of early 17, we came to appreciate that the request for quote model 
that had powered our early years was not going to generate the experience necessary to build Thumbtack into the branded destination for hiring pros for whatever you need done for the simple reason that it wasn't fast enough, which at this point in time, everybody expected their online experiences to be immediate and instantaneous, nor was it able to generate enough liquidity, enough supply. Um, and that was because to power request for code experience, pros had to read and respond to every request as it came in, which was incredibly valuable for customers because they didn't have to go out and search themselves and call down a list of numbers. They could simply wait for pros to send them responses, which they knew would be intentful, qualified, available, with a specific price, basically everything that you need to evaluate whether that pro is right for you. But in asking the pro to read and respond to everyone, that's a lot of burden. It's a lot of effort. Um, and so, you know, in early 17, we took the bet of saying, hey, the only way we make Thumbtack into the sort of amazing experience it needs to be to become a sort of world-dominant brand is if we automate this part of the flow for pros. Now, keep in mind that we cover 500 different occupations, and these vary from everything from, like, a plumber to a wedding officiant to a math tutor. And we need to be able to generate estimates as well as pros generate them themselves, sort of programmatically. And sort of like it's a very compelling thing to say and to put in a pitch deck and like sell. It's a much harder thing to build, um, harder than even we anticipated. But over the last couple of years, um, pulled it off, which feels really, really good. So this has been this has been the big transition then. For the company over the last what two years, mm-hmm. um, transitioning. So, so just to clarify that, so moving from a a lead generation marketplace to being really more of a transactional marketplace where you're yeah, I don't, going to sort of almost instant booking. Correct. Yeah, but I, I don't actually like the lead gen uh, word. I think it's a it's a very misused word. Um, and the the reason I react that way is like Google and Facebook are lead gen companies too. But they're typically not thought of as lead gen. I think the traditional association with lead gen is that you're a pass-through, that you're an affiliate, that you buy low and sell high and have no enduring relationship with either side. Thumbtack is all about having a long-term enduring relationship with both sides. It's true we monetize sort of customer contacts or introductions, which you could call a lead, I think, quite fairly. But like Google and Facebook, we think that's the right point to introduce our monetization that actually makes the experience for both sides better. Um, And that doesn't mean that a pure transactional model um, would somehow make this a marketplace in a way that we today are not. Um, Yeah, it's like saying... um Match.com is a lead generation service. You know, you're not mm-hmm. going to perform the transaction. You got it. That's per a, se, that's like a, online. That's a great but, comparison. But you are gonna. You're providing a huge amount of value to exactly. facilitate an offline interaction. And interestingly, initiated online. And it's the and putting that payment friction makes the match better. Yeah. Uh, because you increases know, the quality and the. It. Exactly and the right. sort of, you know, how serious someone is. So the thing that changed is instead of Thumbtack being a sort of asynchronous experience where you had to wait for responses, we made it instantaneous. Um, and yet we did that by working very, very hard to retain the same quality, that same intent that our matches had before. Um, and we have a sort of metric to track this, and we're very proud of how far. And and you know we feel like uh, we are now able to generate these sort of machine matches that have the same revealed sort of 
um, appreciation by our customers as well as humans, uh, these human pros were able to do it. And like, it shows us that we were right and that this was possible. Um, but man, it's a real grind. <laughs> we'll get into that, how you, how you figure that out. And so the, you know, I've seen from um, historically from speaking people at Airbnb and eBay, this sort of addition of this kind of instant booking or buy it now, that those sort of product enhancements of a pre-existing service have made enormous, enormous benefits, like right. offer relatively sort of um, simple on the surface, but always complex behind the scenes. And that, and that sort of consumer desire for, desire for confidence and convenience is sort of is it's, overwhelming. And an evergreen. I think, you know, even if I don't know anything about your marketplace or your business, if it's a consumer business, I can almost always say something to the effect of, hey, if you make it easier and better for your customers, you will drive more engagement and more retention. Um, and in our case, it didn't take a marketing genius to say, hey, customers want faster responses and they want more responses that are equal or better quality. Yeah. Like a very simple point of view it's executing on it and making it really happen, especially in our case, like some of the examples you cite, like eBay and Airbnb, where you have a hyper-fragmented sort of small business base. So think about what we had to change for these pros. We had to move from a world, a request for quote world, where they could read and then deliberately choose to pay to respond to each and every request. So they had total discretion. It was there were no minimums. They could just pay for what they wanted. Mm -hmm. To now, they give us their sort of targeting preferences, where they travel, what they do, how much they charge. We generate those estimates for them, and they pay when a customer contacts them back. So now they have to trust us to represent themselves, represent them as well as they would themselves, and we are charging them for that. Um, It was an enormous leap of. Uh, an enormous transition that required a big, big change in the sort of trust, the amount of trust they had in us. I'd be interested in the transition. And I've seen kind of personally that evolution at Trulia and then through the merger with Zillow, there were several business models behind the scenes on the back end, kind of innovations that consumers didn't really see it, but the pricing model Mm -hmm. changed a couple of times while I was around the company and then, you know, Within Zillow, it's changed a couple of times again in kind of big ways. And these are, they are incredibly challenging to pull off in a kind of execution, um, Mm -hmm. but necessary because your consumers typically move on. Your supply side typically kind of has different expectations. And if you are not enhancing the consumer experience, then you're inherently going to fail because someone else is going to come up. And I think we've seen, I guess, particularly in your area, how there's been probably a number of vertical specialists that are sort of, you know, hoping perhaps to pick off just sort of, you know, just in the way that companies picked off Craigslist back in the day in in certain verticals. They are, you know, they're trying to pick off. um, I would venture to say, you know, having seen a lot of these verticalized companies that particularly the ones that would call themselves sort of a managed marketplace where the labor is often sort of contracted or subcontracted directly, um, that they will struggle to get to scale. Um, Have not seen it work really at all in in any vertical. Um, And we've talked to a lot of these folks. Um, We think that we have more liquidity in any one of these categories 
than they do and through that provide a better customer experience even if the depth of the product experience does not match because at the end of the day the number one feature is do you have a great pro available for me when I want it for roughly the price that I'm willing to pay that's a very very hard problem that we are able with our scale to solve more effectively than these tailored verticalized companies so um, I think a lot of people over applied the uber experience to this category thinking mm-hmm. oh wow if I just sort of abstract that away and make it a one-click experience it'll just be magical in the same way that ride-sharing was and I think they misappreciated how much nuance is in these local service categories whereby ride-sharing is really a commodity where you don't care so that UX is appropriate but when you're talking about spending hundreds or thousands of dollars when you're talking about your home or your wedding or your child there's a real need to be able to express your unique preference. And through that, you need to sort of reveal sort of the true total availability of this marketplace. And you can't simply just dispatch whoever is at the top of the list. So, yeah, I, I, I can imagine that there's a certainly it's more challenging to facilitate liquidity in 2019 because the sort of Craigslist or SEO or the sort of Facebook, there's, there's the distribution channels are a, a more challenging. But. But at the same time, I guess the product experiences are, as for consumer perspective, the product experience, your expectations have increased substantially over the, the last 10 years. And so how do you think about um, facilitating a horizontal platform, which obviously has the benefits of scale, of cross, mm-hmm. you know, sending fitness trainers to dog walkers to, to other people, that, that, that scale, how does that... That, that's clearly a kind of asset to the company, but trying to create vertically specific product experiences that over-deliver in those use cases, it must be an enormous challenge. It's to- a big prioritization challenge um, because while we are horizontal, we have to customize and develop things that work for the specific occupations and categories that we do serve. And similarly, we want to push the envelope on our own experience. And um, basically, we typically have multiple things going on at once where, you know, the vast majority of our effort is on moving the sort of horizontal platform forward, releasing features that apply, if not to all categories, to most. um, And at the same time, have a sort of more, you know, hypothesis-driven, sort of more experimental set of initiatives that we're trying to push it forward for a much smaller subset of categories. Um, And you'll see that, and you'll see us continue to do that. So, um, you know, now that we have this sort of instant match ability, you can see us start to get to instant book. um, And then through that, the ability to sort of be relevant, not just at the point of introduction and booking, but throughout the life cycle of that job. And, you know, the dream is for us to be the end-to-end experience for all of these categories. And, you know, I think we will get there faster than starting with one vertical all the way deep and then trying to line up other verticals alongside of it. I don't think you see any of evidence of that working at all, um, rather than sort of being able to sort of layer in this functionality as we sort of develop a deeper and deeper understanding of how to pull it off. So, so again, thinking of your back in the early days, would you have done, would you have done anything different? And I think I think about this my own experience of going through these business model mm-hmm. um, pivots almost um, several times. That it's sort of hard to imagine doing something that different because you kind of you sort of need to put one foot in front of the other. You have finite yeah. capital, you have finite users, 
You kind of need to show finite some, knowledge. Finite knowledge. You kind of need to start by sort of solving a discrete problem, and then using that as a you know a starting point to um, to make the transition. I, I think the I guess the almost the the only the only piece of knowledge I wish I had was like change is a constant and that you kind of like if you are not over Buckle up. <laughs> if you're not innovating on your product experience then you are almost failing because your consumer expectations have moved on during the you know the period of two three years since you've been scaling the business but if your product experience has not moved on and, and you're not if you're not able to kind of innovate on that and so there's a degree of almost which these hard transitions are uh, are very painful for companies. Um, whereas if the if the in the organisation if there is a expectation of of incremental pr- transition or consistent mm-hmm. transition, then it's like then you don't have to almost sort of rip the engine out as you're flying. You're just like fixing the propeller you're fixing one wing you're fixing another wing as wing, wing as you're flying so tell me about you know perhaps as you as a ceo and founder how have you managed that transition internally and what are what are some of the lessons so from that when i look back on this transition and think about the things i would do differently they're all about how we set expectations internally not necessarily like the order in which we built things or you know specific features that i wish we did or did not do but much more about expectation setting, which what you realize is the key to maintaining confidence, trust. Um, and I think we should have been more honest with ourselves, first and foremost, and then through that, the whole team, about how big of a change this was, and through that, how much uncertainty. And speak to the steps that we knew were next and the mark of success of being through that. And then when we had more visibility, add that in. Um, but I think, and again, it's hard to know. In some ways, it was a benefit knowing, uh, being naive early on because it was like, well, yeah, of course, this is the right direction, so let's go do it. Um, and then you get into the muck and you're like, oh, my God. But you've kind of burned the bridges behind you, so there's only one direction to go. So there's like, that's helpful. Um, but I think we could have communicated the, the magnitude and through that the uncertainty more clearly and I think it's a really hard thing to do as like a leadership team, a leader. It's hard being vulnerable with that uncertainty. Um, but I think, you know, the partners that you want in the journey and the sort of smart, thoughtful people, um, they're going to see through it if if you don't own it. And it's better to just um, share that and engage with it and sort of um, help people sort of come to terms with it collectively um, then try and sort of minimize it. So that was a big learning. Maybe sh- shifting gears a bit to the future of marketplaces. So how, um, you know, you've, you've looked at, you know, you've been in this industry for 10 years and, and you've seen an evolution. Like how, how, I'd love to kind of get a sense of where you see marketplaces heading. There's obviously enormous fertile ground here at NFX. We have our own kind of perspectives on that. We We have a a broader thesis on so-called fintech-enabled marketplaces where we're starting to add a lot more sort of traditional financial services or fintech component into that in addition to increased consumer experiences. How do you, what do you see as the next wave of interesting marketplace businesses? So, you know, one dimension that I think is um, 
not sort of apparent to most folks is how much human capital is out there and how hard it still is to find, vet, and hire. And obviously this speaks to Thumbtack's category, but I would say it more broadly. You know, we don't touch education or healthcare or international remote work. Um, So there, but, you know, if you look at the trend over the last, you know, 10 years in the sharing economy, really what you've seen is a uh, capital assets, homes and cars, being brought into marketplaces and through that been able to offer enormous consumer surplus in value. But these are capital assets. These are things. What we really have not seen at scale is the same for human capital, for the time and talent that we all have that I think is ultimately the biggest resource this world has and certainly this country has, and still the sort of category that is most opaque. Um, So I think we are in the very, very early days of sort of labor or service or human capital marketplaces, however you want to think about it, um, to dramatically increasing the efficiency through which the sort of two sides of that transaction can find each other. And through that, for human capital to find a market for itself and bring itself to market. Um, There is so much latent potential. And this gets to the sort of like broader view of tech as sort of a force for good just as much as it can be a force for bad. And I think it's a reflection of people's narrow view of tech as a substitute for labor, while I think it can also be a complement to labor. And so what Thumbtack really does, and there are other platforms, we're certainly not the only one, is it enables the amazing diversity of human talent that's out there to find a broader audience for itself and through that sort of earn more money and reach its own aspirations and also help all these end customers, you know, paint their homes and cater their weddings and tutor their kids. So I think um, we are in sort of like day one, minute two of that. Um, It is still so, so early. And I think people underappreciate how big that's going to be. So you talked just now about um, making the transition and uh, and managing that transition and your own kind of vulnerability as a as a founder CEO making that like how, how, talk to you know you, talk to other founders perhaps about how the benefit of vulnerability as a as a leader and kind of sharing perhaps the the challenges that you face as a as an individual and, and the challenges you face as a as a leader in the organization and how you manage through that. Yeah, so I think the tension comes about because in many ways you are cheerleader in chief. When you sell new employees, when you retain current employees, when you're selling investors, when you're talking to the press, you are by definition out there selling and putting out the story of the business and why it's so great. And then there are moments where that is not the mode that you have to be in. And instead, you have to be sort of like real talk in chief. And the fear, certainly my fear, um, is how do, you do, how do you balance those two things in the right way? Because um, the, the, the end goal is to have complete and utter confidence that you will succeed, but admit every potential flaw or thing that might get in your way and own it in a truly humble humble and sort of intellectually honest way. Like, that's the ideal. Yeah, yeah. Total confidence, and we are going to win no matter what, but holy shit, 
if we don't fix these 11 things, we are screwed. And I think leadership is ultimately an exercise in self-awareness and coming to recognize yourself better and through that, how you can then put yourself out into the world. And, you know, one of my, like, things that I've learned is when I'm scared, that's usually actually a sign that I should lean into that and share. Because if I'm scared, then so are a ton of other people. And even if I'm not visibly scared, the thought that someone may think I am scared is something that will scare them and worry them. And so those are the exact moments to acknowledge that fear. And then unpack it for people. Like, hey, that's, I, I am scared that this might not work. What we're trying to do has never been done before. In our early experiments, we saw some clear opportunities for making this work, but also some challenges that are going to be really hard to surmount. But what gives me confidence is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and, I, like that is um, is scary and hard to do. Yeah, it is. I I, I can. I, it echoes a lot of my experience, and you know, and, and vividly, I'm kind of recalling back an experience in 2008 when. Um, uh, you know, during the midst of the global financial collapse, there was like running an online real estate company. It was like no one believed that we would survive and and the employees were kind of enthusiastic. And I think there's a, you kind of, and I and I was like, you know, scared shitless, um, literally. And, um, and, you, and you feel you need to maintain the motivation, enthusiasm, but if you're, everyone is kind of reading the headlines if, and everyone knows what the met, happened and to the metrics. And they're smart and thoughtful people. And they're smart. And so if you are sort of hiding anything from them, then you will lose their trust and lose their respect. And I was, frankly, you know, a, a lightning bolt moment for me was when, you know, ended up having a very sort of candid conversation around the challenges of the business, um, what we needed to achieve. And then, you know... And having faith in the team to live on that, and re- and then seeing in a matter of weeks um, how the team had risen to the occasion and started sort of creating incredible product plans and ideas and execution, which was um, you know realized that you know that old adage a kind of problem shared is sometimes a problem halved, um, that the team was kind of bracing these things and. Um, it was it was truly a turning point for me as as a leader how that how that helped to turn things around and I think your and your sort of respect as a as a leader is also magnified within the organization as well totally and I think another thing that um, I was certainly hung up on is like well I know that there's people who are worried I don't want this to push them the wrong way and have them say hey you know what I don't want to be part of this but actually in retrospect I wish I had. First off, the vast majority of people were excited and did believe. And look, for those who didn't, you know, they deserve a handshake and a hug and a goodbye. And, like, we don't need that around. Um, We need believers. We need people with conviction. Um, And these pivotal moments, by definition, are ones that not everybody is going to agree to. And actually revealing that is a a very powerful and cleansing thing for the organization because those detractors are going to continue to detract in just more subtle ways in the comments they leave in docs or the questions they ask or the way they push and prod. And some of that is healthy. You have to be intellectually honest with what's not working. But if you're truly not a believer, Mm -hmm. well, then 
you should yeah, find move somebody on. else. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, plenty of opportunities That's in right. Silicon Valley and and these sort of refounding events almost kind of create a sort of emotional commitment, which is critical for the next wave of execution and, and innovation. So, so, so we talked a little bit about kind of internally, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on, on like fundraising and kind of also board management and, you know, how do you, obviously you're a private company, but managing, managing the other constituents um, and, and, then, and any advice for founders who are fundraising right now? What are some of the lessons that you've learned? So I think the biggest lesson that I wish I knew early on in my first sort of professional round that I went out to raise my Series A was that you have to be very clear not on just what this next investor is looking for, but the one after that. Because that's what they have in mind, and they're thinking of this investment as one that gets you to the proof points, to the de-risking events, to the numerical targets that then entice the next round investors. And really working backwards from that, such that the current round has confidence that, sure, you have to execute, but if you do, and you deliver on the things that you say you're going to deliver on, then they're confident that the next round's investors will see that as well and have confidence. And basically, every round is a bridge round, and you have to recognize that and talk about and internalize what that next set of objectives is. Um, and I didn't get—I didn't know that the first time around, and um, that so made it harder so setting, than it needed to be. So being transparent, you know, post or during a fundraising event, being explicit around this capital will achieve these particular metrics or milestones so, to achieve what you think is going to be sufficient to kind of raise the next capital. Yeah, correct. So let's make it more explicit. So you're raising a, your Series A, which is effectively your first growth round today, uh, which is it's, uh, it's <laughs> it's how, true. Yeah. It's how it should be thought of. Um, you guys are in the venture business. Everybody else is in the growth business. Um, and so you don't have product market fit yet. You probably don't have much business model risk, though you probably have some. Um, but uh, it's still sort of TBD how quickly and effectively you can scale. So knowing that your Series B at that point then really becomes a pure growth equity investment, you have to be able to tell the story to your Series A investor about here are the key milestones and the things that I'm going to de-risk and accomplish. And if I do those, I know I will be set up to raise a Series B in 18 or 24 months. So the like you know, use of proceeds, the sort of like goals should map to what that Series B investor is ultimately going to look for. Um, and I don't think you need to be explicit about it. And in fact, I think it's better if you're not. But that Series A investor will certainly appreciate that. And, you know, my version of that is public markets. So um, in thinking about what people today need to see to have confidence that, you know, their investment will have a good return is that we are set up to ultimately go public successfully and the things that are required for that. And they need to see me speak to that to have the confidence that we've internalized that and our plans are going to reflect that. So as you think about the market you're in, as you think about the, the wave of competition, we've, you've shared that the, the belief that some of the vertical specialists are going to struggle. How do you think competition more broadly, perhaps against the, the huge incumbents, Facebooks, Googles, mm-hmm. um, which are sort of seemingly permeating kind of almost every aspect of digital business these yeah. days. So interestingly, you did not name our biggest competitor, which in my mind is word of mouth. The vast majority of these transactions are still sourced by you texting your neighbor or knocking on somebody's door or asking a friend. Now, it's true that 
some of that is now mediated through Facebook or through Nextdoor, but the search paradigm is via your social network. That's ultimately what I'm competing with. 90, 95 plus percent of the GMV is transacted through social networks, not through a sort of marketplace like ours. Um, and that's really something I think a lot about, which is like, how, how can I be better than word of mouth? Well, one, I can be broader. I can give you more selection. Your neighbors have hired zero or one plumbers in the last few years. And the odds that their plumber is right for you is very, very low. But you go to them because of trust. So can I accomplish the same sort of level of trust and confidence that this person is going to do a good job while giving you dramatically more selection? So that's, that's I think, my biggest motivation. Because when I think about the defensibility that we have, it's really the relationship with these hundreds of thousands of small business owners across the country in 500 different occupations. And not simply like that we know each other, but that they've integrated with Thumbtack. They've told us all of their preferences and sort of targeting criteria. Um, and I know they've done it more deeply with us than any other platform. But I, I, th- I, I hear you. I think the, the sort of offline sort of non-digital component is the opportunity or market share is sort of mm-hmm. de minimis versus the opportunity. But I'm going to push back a bit because I, I think there's... Um, you, you know, you're a sophisticated CEO. You're like, you're probably kind of running kind of like, you know, half a dozen different analysis every time looking at kind of different competitors in the space who who have a similarly or smaller kind of market share. Um, like as a, you know, as a, as a CEO running a company, then how much do you think about competition? Like, and, and how much, how much are you kind of monitoring activities from from other people and and i i think you you're, you're probably acutely aware of what everyone's doing at certainly you know, and at i one time. and i care a lot about being acutely aware now interestingly historically and certainly at the start it was driven from a fear like somebody's gonna beat us and oh my god who else is out there what are they doing now it's from like what can i learn Um, How can that sharpen my own point of view? And to speak specifically to sort of like the competitive set that you, you, I think, were actually asking about. So you do have the giant, you know, Internet, you know, companies, Facebook, Amazon, Google. Facebook was trying to do this inside a marketplace and shut it down. They obviously could come back to it. But I think this is uh, they have the tyranny of being so global and so broad and local services is so like market specific that I struggle to believe it will be very high on their list to generate um, the type of return that they need to see over the near term. Uh, Google, I think this does not play well with their DNA in the same way that they did not win in e-commerce because they don't have the operational willingness to go deep with these pros and these small business owners. Um, I don't see any, any evidence of that. And so I would presume that the way it plays out is they develop an ad unit so that they can capture sort of a better take than what AdWords can do that's specifically tailored. And one already exists in Google Home Services. Um, But I don't fear them doing it sort of themselves. And then finally, Amazon, I think, is from a DNA standpoint, by far the best place. But um, what I've seen is that they have moved away from our approach because they weren't able to make it work and now tried to do it in a truly commodified way Um, as a way of offering services to spur big-ticket home goods sales. So if you're buying a treadmill or a dishwasher or a washing machine, most humans, myself included, need somebody to come set it up. 
Um, and they know that to break into those categories, they need to offer that to you. But in the sort of like, um, you know, more traditional or, or sort of more our bread and butter, like an interior painter, um, they don't have any of that and their attempts of it have failed. And it speaks to the fact that it's fragmented. It's also not organized. There's no publicly available metadata like SKUs that you can use to jumpstart your sort of like ontology, um, nor is there any point of aggregation like a wholesaler or distributor that you go sign, sign one deal with and instantly you have you know, sports goods as a category is now available on, on your e-commerce site. So I think it's uniquely fragmented and sort of opaque digitally, which makes it very hard to break into. I think the competitors that we honestly look to the most are, on one hand, uh, Angie's Home Advisor, which is the sort of uh, merger of Home Advisor and Angie's List, which is our purest competitor, um, and then Yelp. Uh, which is thinking hard about this category and trying to monetize it better. Um, and I think, yeah, happy to speak to both of those. But, like, you know, I listen to the earnings calls or actually I read the transcripts because earning calls are slow and boring. Um, <laughs> but uh, I read them every quarter. And yeah. we have a, a team internally sort of in the finance team that catalogs it, that reads it, and we think about it. And we discuss it as a leadership team because that is critical to stay abreast of and to learn from. Not to copy, not to sort of react to, but to learn from. Yeah, I I, I wrote a, a piece most recently about um, hyper competitive battles and the sort of the, the classic battles that I experienced in Trulia versus Zilla and you see Uber versus Lyft. It's a kind of popular public narrative. And I think there was, there was one component in there which was more focused on sort of um, peer competition around what can be coffee what can be copied often will be copied um, and the importance of culture and then importance of brand. Brand is just much harder to, uh, to copy. And, and, if, and it sounds like this brand for you is, you know, I've seen the billboards around San Francisco. That's, a, that's increasingly a big push. For oh, it's a huge push. To be, and, and how, so how do you, what is Thumbtack as a brand, what does that mean? And, and, and how does that manifest itself in the product experience as well? So I think at the end of the day, we need to be the most trusted place to hire the right pro for whatever you need done. That's the aspiration, such that you can accomplish anything with Thumbtack. And, you know, people need to trust that because first and foremost, it delivers. So I think your product and the service that you deliver is the fundamental sort of arbiter of whether you can or can't be or live up to your brand promise. But then also the personality of the brand needs to reinforce that point of view such that it feels, uh, I mean, the point that brand marketers rightfully make is that people remember feelings and emotions not value propositions, not statistics, not facts. And so the way that your product or service makes people feel is going to be that key thing to generate a memory with them and through that drive retention and repeat usage. So um, fundamental, it's something that I feel like... It's the, pro the product is the brand in digital businesses. It reinforces the brand and needs to create that Correct. kind of re remarkable experience that you remember and you return to. Yep. Exactly. So, so we talked about the the future of marketplaces, and you know there are there are some schools of thought that things become increasingly online, increasingly digital. Yeah. Certainly, I've seen that in kind of through the evolution of the last twenty years in marketplace businesses. Like, um, 
how how do you see that how do you see the future of 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 that online to offline interaction oh so i think you're right i mean the broad trend is towards digitization and digitally native sort of experiences mediating the exchange of goods services uh really everything um you know, at the end of the day, like what we facilitate is the exchange of time for money. You're renting somebody's time with dollars. Um, and I think to take your point a little bit further, I think it's about removing key points of frictions rather than taking the transaction online. I think I often talk to marketplace founders who are sort of obsessed with this notion of whether they should sort of be transactional and find a way to bring the transaction sort of within their sort of marketplace. And my first question to them always is, are you solving your problem or your customer's problem? And when you push on that, what you often hear is like, well, I, I really want to be a commission-driven business model, and I think that sets me up for success. I think that's what people want to see. Um, and I push, and they're like, well, yeah, for customers, it's not that bad. It's like, well, then why are you wasting your time doing that? Like in my case, you go talk to 10 homeowners, 10 busy moms, 10 potential customers of ours and ask them the most painful part of getting something done, 100% of the time you will hear finding that pro. Finding and trusting that mm -hmm. they found the right pro. You, I have never heard paying for that pro. Now, I want to make paying magical and effortless, but not if it comes at the expense of making finding and hiring effortless yeah. and that has to be the core and once i am sort of not a hundred percent but you know further along than i am today i will add in those other steps but actually from a motivation standpoint in large part to fuel the matching yeah, yeah because it makes a better and better matching experience not because of something that i want as a business be it uh the business model opportunity or the ability to track gmv more explicitly such that i can put that as sort of the top line in my PL. Um, yeah, but consumers don't care about the end-to-end -end marketplace dynamic. They they care about the um, a successful how does it make transaction. Their life better. Yeah. And look for something like ride sharing. Payment was key, and it was I think a key way to make it. You know, booking was a big part of it, but being able to walk out that door yeah. and not worry was a, a big big enhancement. But paying your painter you spend very little mental energy worrying about or uh, sort of like, it doesn't grate you. Now, we can make it better, and we will, but it's not my first order concern. So Marco, great to have you on the NFX podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Pete, thanks for having me.